just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Don't tell me not to fly. I simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on My name is Barbara is the long-awaited memoir from Barbara Streisand, superstar of stage, screen, recordings and television uh, programmes. Barbara Streisand is by any account a living legend. She's among a handful of EGOT winners. That's Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony Award winners. She's been nominated for the Grammy Awards uh, 46 times, in fact. And with Yentl, she became the first woman to write, produce, direct and star in a major motion picture. In My Name is Barbara, she recounts her early struggles to become an actress, eventually turning to singing to earn a living. The recording of some of her acclaimed albums, starring roles in hit films like What's Up Doc and The Way We Were, before she turned to directing films including Yentl and The Prince of Tide. She also talks about her political advocacy and family life. Aideen Gormley, presenter of RTE Lyric FM's Music and Mus- Movies and Musicals, is with me in studio this evening. She's been reading the very large book that's sitting <laughs> on the desk in front of her. But I guess... Um, there's a lot of story to be told by Barbara Streisand, Aideen, and I'm guessing that that song is what she's telling us to do. Don't rain on my parade. Yes. Here's my story. Don't even try edit me, I think, as well. <laughs> if you look at the size of the book, it is a big book. And Sean, I mean, there's, there's everything in this. And I think the big thing for Barbara Streisand at, at 81, we have to remember she is now, and she's been writing this book for years. And so it's all here. And I think she wanted the truth out there. There have been a lot of unauthorised biographies, which she wasn't happy about, uh, all released to her annoyance. So this mm. is, as you say, this is Barbara's story for her fans, but also, she said, for her grandchildren. She just wants her full story out there. And it takes us from the very beginning right up to now and everything in between and then some. So is there, you, you know, you play Barbara Streisand quite regularly mm. on your Saturday afternoon programme. I know that from listening yes. and you're a big fan. I get that impression of you. What were you looking for in this book? Yeah, I was I was wondering what more I would learn and what she was going to give us. It's not, I wouldn't call it a gossipy page turner, but let's just say I was looking forward to the next chapter. Mm. Some were more interesting than others. I was kind of wondering though, Sean, as well, would I like her at the end of it? You know, she has this, you, you get the impression of, of the diva, don't you? And mm. that, you know, she, she's the all-controlling kind of a person. And, you know, I've read autobiographies before. I remember actually Laurence Olivier's autobiography put me completely off him as a person because it was one of those, I'm great, look what I did in every single chapter, you know. But actually, I do like Barbara at the end of this. I think she does give us a, a wonderful story of her personal and her professional career. She is more de- self-deprecating than I thought, mm. actually. You know, she does realise, you know, she says, I must have been really annoying, you know, at times. And she's quite funny as well, even about, you know, when it comes to her, her boyfriends, you know, she has this joke about they were handsome and they had to have good teeth. And this would, this is constantly in, in brackets. So yeah. it's quite funny and it's very yeah. much, I think, in her voice. Yeah, and, and that's why I get this impression that it is don't rain on my parade. I want to tell you what my parade <laughs> was like and I'm going to tell you my version of it, <laughs> yeah. not the version that the others told. And she had a... tricky start to her life. I mean, was it difficult enough childhood? It was difficult. She really did come from from very poor beginnings in Brooklyn. She's a very tricky mother and she sadly lost her father when she was just an infant. He was just 35, died Mm. suddenly. And she has said that, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons her her mother was tricky because she lost her husband. She married again. This sort of stepfather figure was a non-event in terms of Barbara's life. And she says that she thinks she possibly gained her independence as 
as kids do if they have a single parent who's working. So Barbara was was out working very early and and doing her own thing. And yeah, it was tough, but she was going to make it. And a really interesting thing she says is she knew she was going to be famous. From the outset. From the outset. She just said she knew. She was even um, an usher in the in the local theatre and she wouldn't let people see her face if at all possible because she knew one day she'd be up on that stage. Isn't that amazing? Well, Tara Aracht was an usher in the <laughs> National Concert. I do think she let people see her face. I think she did. She didn't let them hear her voice, however, <laughs> until she got up onto the stage. Yeah. Um, Funny Girl was the big break for Barbara yeah. Streisand. Um, really interesting as well. And one of the things I really learned reading this was she constantly wanted to be an actor, not a singer. Mm. But she made her breakthrough as a singer just in, in Brooklyn and in, in one of these uh, Greenwich Village clubs. It was actually just a contest and she won and there were people around going, this girl is going to be a star. But she constantly was taking singing work going, but this will get me to acting. It, it, you know, she never wanted to be a singer, which I find extraordinary because this natural voice she had. Do you know, she doesn't read mm. music, still doesn't read music. She wow. just has this ability to pick up a tune. And, and yet when, also, yeah. when, you, when you listen to her in many of the songs that she'd be singing, they're, they're big arrangements, big orchestral arrangements around her. She got that as well. I found it really interesting that she could even spot who was a good piano accompanist. And if they played really boring chords, she would sing the better chord and suggested. <laughs> Them. She has this extraordinary year. But yeah, funny girl. Would you believe she was an hour late for the audition? Yeah. Mm. Uh, but she arrived and she was so good that, that she got the gig. And again, there's this, you know, controlling thing she had over not getting in the early days that the director wanted her to do the same thing every night. <laughs> there were little mm. moments like that. One of the sad things I didn't know about Funny Girl is that her, this was on stage now before she played it on film, her male lead was Sidney Chaplin, son of Charlie Chaplin. And they had an affair. They were both, she was with Elliot Gould at the time. He was also with somebody. And she said, look, sometimes it happens. There can be a very intense thing with your leading man. And was she married to Elliot Gould at this uh, stage? Yeah, yeah. She, was, she was certainly going out to them at yeah. this stage and then married him. Um, but anyway, she decided a little early, on, a little early into the, the, the affair. She said, no, look, Sidney, I'm, you know, we're both with people. Let, let's stop mm. this. He took it really, really, really badly. So much so that he was appalling to her on stage. He would be whispering awful things to her. He'd be telling her she was terrible in the scene, just whispering it in this awful, mm. awful way. This, I think, was the beginning of her stage fright that we now know that she had through the years. She had panic attacks. She had to see people about it. And she kind of put up with this on stage for about a year. So I, didn't, I never knew that story. And she gives she, us all of that. Do, does she identify that potentially as the beginning of the stage fright? Yeah, there, was, there, there were panic attacks then. And then she acknowledges that in the late 60s, she did a big gig in Central Park in front of thousands. And she forgot the words of a song she knew incredibly well. But she forgot the words. Mm. She didn't go on stage again in concert for 27 years. It was yeah. really tough, really, yeah. really yeah. tough, actually. And, and, and because she had so many strings to her bow, you kind of yeah. don't think of her being out of the the public eye for that length of time. Exactly. But you that mentioned there, you mentioned there about uh, Elliot Gould, who mm. was the first husband. Uh, and uh, how does she handle the end of that marriage uh, in the in the telling here? It seems to be very amicable. Um, you know, she mentions there were issues and she even, she's quite generous in that, or careful, should I say, in that Elliot Gould did have some gambling problems and she said, he has spoken about this, hence I will. Mm. You know, so she doesn't kind of give anything away in, in that. And they had their son Jason together. But, um, you know, it all turns out fine and she's very fond of him still. Right. But there are lots of other I was men. going to say, there you, you have a men. long list of <laughs> partners, boyfriends, yeah. affairs. 
It's it's really, I mean, she's very funny about it. They mm. were just, and she does say, I kept choosing unavailable men. You know, there's this hairdresser, John Peters, she was with for a while, but she says, you know, he was kind of a tough guy. Maybe he was going to protect me, but in the end, he was he was a little too volatile. Really interesting about Ryan O'Neill, her co-star in What's Up, Doc. They dated before they made the movie, which I didn't know about. So then she said it was kind of, oh, now we have to act this and it's actually <laughs> over at this point. There was Andre Agassi, the tennis player. I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about uh, yeah, him. Yeah, I'd forgotten about him. She gives him a few pages just, but says, you know, play tennis with him. And there's Don Johnson, you know, the list, the list goes on. There's James Newton Howard, the composer of Prince of Tides. That didn't last. Um, Prince Charles fancied her. He, he sent her flowers. Um, there, there are so many. Chris mm. Christopherson in there, too. You know, like all these, you know, men. Yeah, and, and obviously they all had good teeth. They all had good teeth. For to believe her. Pierre Trudeau as well, yeah. Justin Trudeau's father. I mean, it's interesting. Now but she's now married to James Brolin for like 25 years or so and really yeah. happy marriage at the end of so it. So she found the man eventually that man. was the right man But yeah, for she her. gives us a little, a few juicy bits there. What's up, Doc? You mentioned um, Ryan O'Neill there. Uh, you know, you, you, when, you, when you think of Barbara Streisand, you think of the songs, you think of those mm. big songs like we just heard, you know, Don't Rain in My Parade. But she had phenomenal uh, comic timing. Just give us the setup of what the story was, because given that she went out with Ryan O'Neill, it's kind of interesting what this story yeah, is. Yeah, well, it's it's Madeleine Kahn and uh, who's, uh, her first film, actually, and she's hilarious. And what's interesting here is that she doesn't give us a lot about it in the book, which I was disappointed by, because mm. I think she is so funny in this. Do you know what? Asking me for the plot is kind of tricky, because she didn't understand the plot. There are an awful lot of suitcases and things going wrong and yeah. there are jewels and there's, you know, she's, Ryan O'Neill's engaged to Madeleine Cam, but then Barbara Streisand comes in. It's hilarious and it's quite a complicated yeah. plot, but so it's the, very basically funny. Basically, they, they should be going out together if you're watching the film, is yeah. more or less it, isn't it? Yes. There, and this fiancé is in the way. Let's listen to Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill in action together. Steve, wait! Wait up, Steve! Oh! Uh, uh. Oh, am I sorry. I am... I'm terribly sorry. Let me sew it up for you. We'll go someplace quiet. I'll... We'll get a needle and thread in the drugstore. We'll I don't want to go into the drugstore. I don't like the drugstore. Oh, don't be angry. Oh, listen, Steve. Your name is not Steve. It is Howard Bannister. And now that I've told you that, I just wish you'd forget you'd okay. ever heard it. I like Steve better anyway. Obviously, you've mistaken me for someone else. Now, just go away and leave me alone. Why'd you follow me into the drugstore? I didn't follow you into the drugstore. I had a headache. Still have it? No. Howard. See? Howard. I said five minutes. I'm sorry, Eunice. Eunice? That's a person named Eunice. Where have you been? I had a little problem in the drugstore. Steve, you didn't tell me you were married. We're not married. Congratulations. But we will be soon. Condolences. Who is this person? I haven't the vaguest idea. She was behind a rock in the drugstore. Oh, come on, Steve. You can tell Why is she us. calling you that name? Don't pay any attention to her, Eunice. Look, Miss Mack. You know her name. Eunice, I swear this is a bizarre joke. Sure, it's easy for you everywhere you go. Another heartbroken. Women, women, women. You call it joking. Eunice and I, we call it lust. Don't you know the meaning of propriety? <laughs> Barbara Streisand, Ryan O'Neill and Madeleine oh. Kahn in a scene there from What's Up Doc Aidan Gormley in studio with me this evening talking about um, My Name is Barbara the, the new memoir from Barbara Streisand I mean the comedy it, it's for, for a woman who says she didn't understand the plot of it yeah. she knew how to deliver the lines Yeah and that's a movie I can watch again and again mm. and again and, I'm, I, and I mean the little bit that's in this book is really worth a read actually on it but what I also didn't know was you know the preview screenings that they have just mm. the, the actual film team 
they, they weren't laughing much and they thought it wasn't going to work, which is really interesting. And Barbara says that she had sort of a, a 10% mm. of the box office she was going to get and she thought it wasn't going to work. So she sold it back to Warner's. Then it turned, I'm reading this from the book, it turned out to be the stupidest, stupidest deal I ever made in my life. When the movie opened at Radio City Music Hall in New York, it broke all the house records. If you stood on the street outside the theatre, the laughter inside was so loud that you could hear it through the walls. What's Up Doc was a huge hit and became the third highest grossing film of the year, surpassed only by The Godfather and The Poseidon Adventure. So the joke's on me, she says. Isn't that oh, incredible? Wow. But, it, 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 but again, a kind of a self-deprecation within that. Yeah. Say, I made a terrible mistake. Exactly. She's, you know, she admits it, yeah. To, to be able to do that. I think the chapter on The Way We Were is possibly a little bit more revealing. This is one of the, is this one of the best chapters I, I in the book for you? I think it is. And it actually, they, a little bit of this came out online before, so some people might, might even have mm. read it. I, I, it's a fascinating chapter. Um, in, in particular, just about the casting of Robert Redford, or Bob, as she calls him. Mm. Um, he was the only one she wanted to play this role and he didn't want to do it. And, you know, he said things like it's it's not written properly. This character is 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 not good enough. So she got writers in um, whatever he wanted to be paid, he would be paid. And she just knew it was going to be a hit. But the other big thing that came out from this book was there were two scenes that were deleted from it. Sidney Pollack, the director, decided mm. to delete them. And she was never happy with it. And she asked for the, you know, she has these scenes in her own vault at home. And 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of this film. And she asked in particular, could these two scenes be put back in? And she got her way. Oh, I'd say you don't refuse Barbara. You don't Shreisen refuse Barbara. Too much. Um, no. um, Robert Redford, good teeth, good hair, good eyes, good skin, kind of good everything. Yeah, it's a that's great film again. And she's super there. in it, yeah. Yeah, let's listen to the two of them in action uh, t- together. Um, the, the Ryan, Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand in The Robert, Way We Robert Were. Robert Redford, yeah. Robert Redford, yes. beg your pardon. I'll change. No, don't change. You're your own girl, you have your own style. But then I won't have you. Why can't I have you? Why? Because you push too hard. Every damn minute. I mean, we don't... (laughs) There's no time ever to just relax and enjoy living. Everything's too serious to be so serious. If I push too hard, it's because I want things to be better. I want us to be better. I want you to be better. Sure, I make waves. I mean, you have to, and I'll keep making them until you're every wonderful thing you should be and will be. You'll never find anyone as good for you as I am to believe in you as much as I do or love you as much. I know that. Well, then why? Do you think if I come back, it's going to be okay by magic? What's going to be changed? What's going to be different? We'll both be wrong. We'll both lose. Couldn't we both win? No, doesn't work that way. Sorry, that's uh, Barbara Stiles and Robert Redford in the way we were. Aidan Gormley reading the, uh, the 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 new memoir from Barbara Stiles. Just one thing before we go to how good is it or not? Mm. She was in Ireland for the big concert. Does she talk much about that? When Unfortunately, was that she doesn't. Castletown House was July of two thousand and seven. Um, big fifty eight piece orchestra. Uh, people were mixed about it. I was there. I had a great time. Mm. I was up the front singing along with her auto cue. <laughs> I had yeah. a super time. But just she does have a good bit about Ireland. If anyone wants to read it, page eight seven four. There's a lovely trip to Ireland that she mentions us a lot. Which oh. All right. So at the end of the day, putting your fandom to the one Mm -hmm. side, does the book work? It is a big ask to go for 900, is it 966 pages? Yeah, it it is a lot. I think it is too much. I think she does go into too much detail, but I get why she does. You know, Mm. I think she wants this to be her story. And, um, you know, did I learn a lot about her? Yes, I did. Does she give us the juicy bits and great photos, by the way? They're all there. Uh, So definitely worth a read. But there'll there'll be bits you'll skim over, put it that way. All right. My name is Barbara, is the title of the memoir that Aidan Gormley has been speaking to us about. New memoir from Barbara Streisand. 
Now, you may know Ronan Hessian for his novels Leonard and Hungry Paul and Penanka. You may know Adele Coffey for her novel Breaking Point. Did you know they were musicians in a past life before they ever got into fiction writing? They are joining novelist Megan Nolan and Kieran McGuinness, he of De Laurentiis fame, for an event this Thursday as part of the Dublin Book Festival, an event called Words and Music, where they will be testing out, or teasing out rather, the connections between uh, the art forms and also, I believe, picking up a guitar or two for a performance. Delighted Adele, that Adele Coffey is joining us on the line from Galway. Ronan Hessian is with me in, in studio here. And I'm quite of annoyed that you're not here with me, Adele, because I was hoping <laughs> you would have an instrument with you and that I would be reuniting yourself and Ronan because you were in a band together at one stage, even oh. if, albeit briefly, I believe. Yeah, we were. Um, but it was actually, we crossed over when we played in our friend's band, uh, Richard Murphy. He played in a band called Michael Knight, um, which was a bad name because it was ungoogleable, really, if you think about it. <laughs> Whenever you Googled Michael Knight looking yeah. for band information, you just got David Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was what went wrong with that band. What are your memories of that time, uh, Ronan? Yeah, it was great fun. Myself and Adele and playing with Richie and uh, Lynn was the drummer. A lot of very difficult chords. That was my <laughs> yeah, recollection. Jazz bass lines. <laughs> yeah, so it was quite uh, tough on the fingers, but we, we had great fun doing it. And it was nice not to be uh, the writer, to just sit in the background because he's, he's a very gifted songwriter. So, yeah. I mean, this event that you're both t- talking about, it's about this connection between fiction writing, I guess, and the writing of songs and the performing of of, of music. What way did it work for you, Rona? Was, you know, was music always there? Music and writing, were they living alongside each other quite happily for a large part of your life? I never had any ambition to be a writer. And actually, when I started writing, I had no intention of writing a book. So I was involved, became involved in music in about 1993, so over 30 years ago. Mm. And I started in a band uh, with friends. And then when I went through college and afterwards became involved in the underground music scene. Uh, and I got very interested in blues, acoustic blues and finger picking blues. And I wrote quite storytelling songs. Um, and then about 10 years ago, I, I'd done three albums. Mm. I'd been involved in that scene for a long time and I stepped back from it. And the albums were five years apart. And then after doing my last one, my sort of biological creative clock kicked in. Only this time it was for writing. And when I wrote my first novel, everyone who knew me from music said, oh, we, we all knew you were going to try a book at some stage. And you didn't? No, no, I had no intention because my story, my songs were quite storytelling. Yeah. Um, but then when I, uh, the initial inspiration for the book was really just to write about a character and a crew from there. But it just shows you yeah. your creativity can change over time. Yeah, and you, and you may not even be aware of it yourself. I mean, Adele, I'm, obviously we know you as a broadcaster uh, in, in recent enough times. You've even sat in this chair, I think, on, on occasion. Yeah. Uh, you've certainly <laughs> been on this programme as a commentator and on other programmes across various um, radio stations, including our own here in RTE. You were a journalist in a past life as well. And there was the music before that what was your situation there did all of these things coexist and was one of them the burning ambition that was kind of there at the end of the line or what way was it yeah, I just thank God that this all happened prior to smartphones. So there's very little evidence left of um, of the band uh, in terms of online or recording. To my or great like that. disappointment. 
<laughs> to my great relief. But um, but yeah, Lou, these things always work together for me. I was always a music obsessive from the time I was a very small child, actually, you know, going from the pop charts and then finding sort of indie music and more underground sound. Um, and then when I was uh, in college, I kind of like I I really wanted to be in a band and I just never mm. had the confidence. And when I was in college, I answered an ad in Hot Press um, for a girl band, actually, who were looking for a female um, guitarist. And I rang up and they were like, oh, we have a guitarist. Can you sing? And I was like, uh, yeah, um, which wasn't entirely true. But uh, and yet I find myself uh, somehow going to perform at this gig on Thursday night, um, slightly more nervous than releasing a book, actually. But um, but yeah, there, there's definitely I, I've noticed there's crossover between, um, you know, how I used to create and write songs mm. and how I I write stories now or novels now. There's just um, it's interesting because I used to just like gather little bits of of melodies or riffs and yeah. you know just playing around on the guitar and and you kind of store them up and put them away and think well you know that'll work with something and in a way that's how the writing works too you know I'll, I'll have an idea for something and it won't work on its own but then in six months time or a year's time I'll be working on something else and think oh actually this that is, now is the, the perfect yeah. ingredient to make it work so all right well sadly, sadly as you said there's not enough of you online or anywhere for us to play however <laughs> there is plenty of there's plenty of Ronan uh, yeah. three albums in, in fact uh, along the way at different points let's have a listen to St Christopher's Water Mumbling Death Row Christopher's Water, the name of the song there from Mumbling Death Row. Ronan Hashian is sitting with me in studio. How long is it since you've listened to that song? Where does it come from in your creative life, Ronan? That's from my uh, my hit record of 2012. <laughs> <laughs> it sold literally dozens of copies. Uh, Dictionary Crimes. So yeah, that was from my last album. Uh, and yeah, it's funny. It's a, it's a song about an emigrating son. And it's, it's one of the songs people still contact me about, actually. Mm. It's one of the ones that kind of uh, has meant, uh, has made a connection out there. Yeah, and you, you you mentioned a couple of times when you were talking about that move, as it were, from music to uh, fiction writing, that your songs were storytelling. But there's a big difference between telling a story across a three-minute song or a four-minute song even than there is across an entire novel. How big a, how big a shift of mind, or change of mind or change of direction was that for you? I, one of the reasons why I never expected to write uh, a novel is because songwriting is so condensed. And to write something as expansive as a paragraph, never mind a page in a novel, I just didn't think I was oriented that way. Mm. 
But I think, to be honest, in my books, I think they're still sort of studded with pop lyrics. I think they are still, I'm still drawn towards trying to be quotable here and there. Uh, and I, so I think, I think my training was good uh, mm. in terms of structure, what to leave in, what to leave out. So it's, it's there in, in spine, I think. And, and I'm guessing in terms of you've, you've touched on some of the connections, Adele, between songwriting and the writing of novels. Um, you also had that background as a journalist and a print journalist. Does that stand more to you in terms of novel writing or does the songwriting stand more to you, do you think? I think there's sort of it's like a Venn diagram and there's lots of zones of overlap. So I think the journalism absolutely stands to me in terms of I have no uh, thin skin left. I mean, any editor can say anything to me now at this stage and I will not take offence. And it will always, uh, you know, as a journalist, you're used to seeing changes in print as opposed to being asked politely, um, can they can they make those changes? So so you have a different approach to editing and also then with songwriting it's interesting what um what Ro was saying there about it being good training because the novelist Kazuo Ishiguro started off as a musician and he speaks very interestingly on this point where he says he thinks he entered his writing career at a more mature stage because of his um previous experience a mm. songwriter, and maybe it is about that condensed um, idea of what to put in, what to leave out. But also I think it's about, like music for me is a really emotional language. And I think, um, you know, when you're writing a book or you're writing a story, you, you want to connect with people on that emotional level. And I, I think if you can do that through a note or a motif or a chord or a sequence of chords, you yeah. know, you can then hopefully translate it into a feeling through words as well. Novel number two is on the way. When are we going to get, um, is it In Her Place is the title of the new novel, Adele? Yeah, it's actually, it's done. It's I just finished the copy edits last week, so there's just one more yeah. little read through to go and then it's coming out at the end of March next year. And where are you at with, with that side of the creative uh, life, Ronan? Uh, my next novel, Ghost Mountain, is out on the 23rd of May next year. So it's all done. All and, done. And proof copies are on the way around. So up to now, only about five or six people have read it. So this week, uh, it'll go out to a wider group of people in the book world. So that's exciting. That's a kind of a scary moment too, as much as it is exciting. Different from putting a song out there. Or maybe just as nerve-wracking. Listen, it sounds like a fascinating discussion that you'll, you'll be having on Thursday evening and thanks both for joining us to talk about it this evening. The Words and Music event is sold out as it happens. There is a waiting list. It's taking place at the Glass Mask Theatre in Dublin on Thursday at quarter past eight. Plenty of other events, of course, at the Dublin Book Festival, including our own tomorrow evening, which I'll tell you a little bit more about now. Uh, Dublinbookfestival.com for full details. But thanks uh, to very much to Ronan Hessian and Adele Coffee for speaking to us about that. Now, Halloween may be over, but there is still plenty of time for horror, particularly if you're in the audience of Cork Film Festival next week when they screen Paul Dwan's new film, All You Need Is Death. In this film, well-known documentary maker Dwan brings horror and Shanno singing together in a film where overzealous song collectors come a cropper when they mess with the rules of the oral tradition leading to a body horror fest. 
Ah, delighted to be joined in studio this evening by uh, Paul Dewan, director of All You Need Is Death. I never knew, Paul, that collecting songs was such a dangerous activity as it is in your as it is in your film. Well, you know, it's not a documentary, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's actually as bad as all that. It, no, but it, it is um, obviously you know, it, it's it's knocking a bit of fun out of this idea of um, the Shan no singing. But you're also, I think, probably making a couple of serious points about meddling around with things you shouldn't meddle with. Well, that's just a kind of a standard of the genre. You always have to have the Necronomicon or something, the book you're not supposed to open, the phrase you're not supposed to read. In my case, it's a, it's a, it's a song in Old Irish that was never supposed to be translated or recorded. And where did this idea come from? Um, the, the, was there a song? Was there something about about a, a song that was in somewhere in your imagination? I mean, frankly, I made it up. I was interested in, to be honest, I was I was at a stage where I kind of felt I really wanted to make a, a film, a low budget film. I had mm. just about enough money in the bank to do a short, you know, a shoot, fifteen days, and I wrote a story based around the kinds of things I knew I could do. And uh, it's a largely inspired by the kind of rise of bands like Lancome, um, Lisa O'Neill, John Francis Flynn, the whole rise of the kind of the, what some people call the doom folk music in Ireland, mm. which kind of pr- pr- provided the atmosphere, I suppose, for the script I wanted to write. So the setup that we get then is these um, young song collectors or young people who are interested in songs. We think they're going around to collect songs, but there's a whole other layer going on behind that. How much do you want to tell us about the layer behind it? Well, I mean, it's not given too much away to say that they're trying to sort of acquire um, songs that haven't been written down or haven't been found. You know, like a lot of, you know, song collectors. It's it. I, the, the the the. I suppose I'm tempered with the truth in that this sort of thing is never going to make you rich. Whereas in my film, it's mm. kind of an acquisitive thing they're doing, and by going too far and finding somebody who uh, has forbidden knowledge, they end up bringing themselves into a world of trouble. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's 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 a world. The, the world of the film is not the world of real life. It's a world we created for for the film, and it's 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 interesting and it's bizarre. But it's uh, and it has correspondences with the real world, but it isn't the real world. Right. Well, let it, let us listen to a clip uh, from the film. All you need is death, and this is the character of Alwyn Fuere, who is one of these. She's an ancient, uh, an old singer, and she has great knowledge and great material at her disposal. But she's very wary about sharing it with anybody. As we listen to her now. I know the song you want. My mother learnt it from her mother. And so on and so forth. Back to the old times. It's not even in Irish. But whatever it is that came before Irish. There was a king once who loved a poor woman who betrayed him. And the punishment he put on her and her lover and their baby was terrible. The love curdled inside them and became a curse, what you might call an evil spirit on the world. My mother told me that it comes from a time before writing down when memory was the way we had to hold things. And that the song should never be written down or anything like that. 
but to be remembered and sung by our women. No matter that we don't understand it, we just have to keep the line from breaking. And that's all one fuere there in a scene from All You Need is Death. Writer and director Paul Dwan is with me in studio this evening. And you really get a sense from that, Paul, just how creepy a world it is that you've that you've created here. Are we are we up around the border somewhere uh, in terms of part of the setting? And how, how important is that aspect of things? Um, yeah, the setting for that scene you just heard was Cross Midland. We mm. actually shot it sort of just somewhere in County Kildare because you can't tell where you are. But uh, yeah, it was intended to be across the border. The film, the script is original set in the 70s when I first wrote it and you know there was a sense of crossing the border as a kind of a transgressive thing but I dumped the period setting when I rewrote it and just kept the the feeling of being in slightly in in in, a, in no man's land a little bit you know and we heard some of the um the sound design in underneath uh, Alwyn Fuery as she as she gave us that description of the song that the two collectors have coming that they want to hear they want to acquire it as you, as you put it yourself in Lynch of Lancome is involved in in not only the sound design but in the music of the of the film as well. Oh yeah, I mean when I wrote the script it's Ian's a I didn't know Ian, but I knew he was a, a, not just a musician of genius, but also a great fan of the horror genre and also has a, an academic qualification in folklore. So he was he's the kind of Venn diagram of all the concerns in the film. So I, he was the first person I sent the script to. And when he read it and said he loved it and wanted to do the music, then I felt that was the go ahead. If he'd, if he'd said it, he didn't like it, I think I probably would have had to rethink the entire thing because he's exactly the right target for it. So he was vital to the project really oh, he, for you in some ways. Unbelievably vital. I mean, Ian's my 50% collaborator in the film. I mean, uh, he's without his music, the film wouldn't really exist. Yeah. And in fact, there is there's quite a bit of singing in it as well. Not from from Alwyn Fuera. It gives us a, a performance in, in almost in a Lancome style, I would I would argue. But also we get in Simone Collins, who is playing one of the, the Anna, the young woman who's part of this collecting duo. Anna and Alex are the two who are who are collecting the music. She gives a wonderful rendition, a wonderful musical rendition along the way. I was incredibly lucky to find Simone because not only is she a brilliant actor, um, but she can also sing really well. And uh, if I hadn't, I, 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 we didn't actually, I, I never actually tried her out. The first mm. time I heard her sing was when we were filming. but <laughs> She blew everybody away. I, I should also say that Barry Gleeson, brother of Brendan, makes yes, his, acting, yeah. his acting debut in this. Barry's a legendary ballad singer. Uh, but nobody ever asked him to act, and uh, he's a natural. He's brilliant. You know, yeah, so. and we hear him. We hear him singing at the mm-hmm. uh, very much at the, almost at the top of the at yeah. the top of the film, in fact, as well. I mean, this idea of folk music, and even we get it there when uh, Alwyn Ferry's character is describing the song that she's not supposed to, to sing, and we do hear a little bit of "There Was an Old Woman and She Lived in the Woods." Wheela wheela while yeah. It has that. Sometimes folk music can have that horror aspect very close to the surface. Well, if you listen to old folk songs, there's an awful lot of infanticide. There's an awful lot of murder. There's a lot of wife murder. Um, I went to see Oxen the other night, who were amazing, another offshoot band from Lancome, and they said they'd managed to find the only ballad that had a man being killed instead of a woman, and they sang that. But, you know, it's women and children suffer a lot in these old Mm. songs. It's quite grisly. Yeah, and certainly it gets grisly as as time goes on in the film as well. We should explain a little bit about the character of, of Agnes, played by is it Catherine Siggins, who mm-hmm. plays the character of Agnes, where she fits into it. Yeah, well, she's kind of a guru of, of uh, the people who want to collect old songs and she's sort of, uh, but you get a sense that she's in it for herself. She's not just there to train you or mm. help you find. She's uh, she's more acquisitive. She becomes the kind of the, the bad guy in a way. And my old friend Catherine, uh, who's been based in Los Angeles for many years, came over to play 
uh, the role and did it brilliantly, I think. And uh, she's a very, she brings a real creepiness to the to the role. And finally, there is a vampire, uh, vampiric, if that's the correct way to say that word, a vampire element to the story here as well. Very much linking into the folk tradition of, of uh, Middle and Eastern Europe, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm very influenced in the kind of film I wanted to make was very influenced by, you know, Polish and Hungarian. And, um, you know, for me, Ireland's more a part of Europe than anything else. And I'm very bored with um, Irish filmmakers doing American style horror movies or, you know, whatever. I'm kind of like looking at Hungary and Poland and going, they've got way more in common with us, war and famine and pestilence and uh, poverty. And they tell great stories. So we've kind of taken some of their grim fairy tales. And yeah, and, and Alex, the character of Alex played by Charlie Maher has, has that aspect within, that. Within, within his character as well. Not a documentary insight. Is there anyone coming? Um, possibly. I'm talking about maybe doing another Dead Zoo thing, but we'll see. I should say that the film is on. Should we... Uh, do I, I have the, all the details oh, you have it all. So Cork Film Festival. Don't worry. We'll tell them where it's on. Thank you. <laughs> I'd be beaten up by yes, the PR. Yeah, you would be. Yes. All you need is death. Nominated in the Cork Film uh, Festival as best new feature in the Best New Feature Award category. It's showing at the festival 8pm on the 15th of November. Uh, you can get full details on CorkFilmFestival.com. Paul Duan, thanks for coming in to us this evening. Thank you very much. New series, The Buccaneers, is loosely based on Edith Horton's unfinished novel and it centres on two sets of wealthy sisters, the St George's and the Elmsworth, who ventured to England, inspired by the whirlwind romance of their friend Conchita and her English lord. There they break conventions and clash with the buttoned-up British gentry. Does this all sound familiar? The Buccaneers explores the challenges that these young women face in a society where the rules are stacked against them with contemporary music and anachronistic language. The series offers a twist on historical period dramas. That definitely sounds familiar, I have to say, (laughs) while delving into contemporary themes. I'm not talking about Bridgerton. Let's listen to a clip from the opening of The Buccaneers before we speak to um, Jen Gannon, who's been watching the series for us. And here we have a nan played by Christine Froseth, who introduces the viewer to the morning of the wedding of her friend Conchita. I was never supposed to be the main character. Always more than glad to let Ginny, my sister, and my friends compete for all that. Girls are taught to believe that if a story isn't a love story, It's a tragedy. And I had no interest at all in being involved with either one of those. The whole world knew that My Best Friends was a love story. A whirlwind romance with a handsome English lord can only be followed by a huge society wedding. To make entirely certain anyone not envious of Conchita yet soon would be. But nobody's jealous of a bride his groom has failed to show. That is Nan, played by Christine Froseth, in the opening scene of The Buccaneers on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Jen Gannon has been watching the series for us and she's with me in studio this evening with a grimace on her face already. <laughs> before, before we get into that, an Edith Wharton novel, as I said, mm. uh, but an unfinished novel. So... Yeah. Is this a totally made up story or how much kind of Horton's of. work is I in mean, there, there's not, there's, uh, It never had an ending. The original mm. novel, it was never finished. And, you know, they tried to make an adaptation of this back in 1995 for the BBC with 
much controversy because Wharton academics were saying the ending that the BBC tacked on yeah. uh, was very Hollywood, it was very happy ending and they didn't think it was in keeping with her style of writing and, and the themes that she would have brought to the fore. And the same could be said about the Buccaneers as well. We really don't know what direction that Wharton would want to have taken the novel into, I suppose. But um, it seems like for all the subjects that are brought up within the Buccaneers, it, it seems quite conventional. Now, obviously, we got a sense from it from the clip that we just heard. We have the modern music mm. in the background. There's no question but that she's using a very strong contemporary uh, American accent. She is. even says, um, I wasn't meant to be the main character. And if, if we know anything about modern parlance these days about TikTok, it's all about, are you the main character or on Twitter going, oh, who's Twitter's main character today? Or, you mm. know, so immediately from the get-go, it's like the audience that they're out to get are these young girls. It's It's all about, this is, you know, for, I would say, like, under 18 anyway but the themes are quite a little bit adult as well so it is you're kind of wondering where is the level where pitched at pitch? from well, the get-go Just give us a sense of the, the two families and the America Europe or America mm. London uh, dynamic because that's the heart of the story exactly. isn't so it Exactly so you really? have like the feisty like the St George sisters um, one who is Ginny who's Imogen Waterhouse the sister of the model Suki Waterhouse who's also an actress and a singer. She's one of those slashies. And um, then you have Kristen Froset who uh, plays her very strong-willed um, younger mm. sister Nan. And Nan is, is the Joe March of the scenario. She's the one that has these ideas that are, you know, not of the time and quite, you know, nascent feminist ideas. And then they have their other two friends as well, um, Mabel, Elmsworth and Lizzie. And they're kind of along for the ride. They're all looking for partners in in England, in Britain, uh, society partners, they've, you know, tested the waters of, they have reached a certain level of society in America and that are invited over mm. by Conchita's husband, who's a lord, to find their own matches in, in England. And that's, it's like introducing these vibrant girls into a society that's much more sedate and to adhere to the rules and whether they're going to buckle down and get on in this society or whether they're going to disrupt it and, you know, liberate these kind of stuffy-nosed English people into their kind of world. But of course, um, in some ways, quite like contemporary American society, there's an absolute obsession with royalty and with mm. British royalty. In, and wanting in to infiltrate that kind of lifestyle and, and, and liking almost the rules and regulations but also when they're away from them but when they have to adhere to them it's a very different story. I mean the way that I was saying it looked like when any time the girls appear mm. and they always appear in this bundle like of them all together it was like the way the Spice Girls were when they would go you know to press conferences and they'd be standing on the table and Fleet Street you know really didn't know how to treat them. This is kind of that spirit. Right. They're you know over the top they're always you know popping champagne they're always screaming and laughing and twirling around and you know that does not go down well. Well let's listen to a moment featuring Lord Richard which of course is the British side of the story Josh Dillon the actor here inviting Mrs St George Christina Hendricks mm. no less um, in, in out of Mad Men mode and into <laughs> into whatever, a corset <laughs> into a corset for this one her daughters uh, she, he's inviting her and her daughters to London for the debutant ball we'll also hear uh, Irish actor Simone Kirby as Miss Test Valley in the midst of this I'm afraid you can't attend a New York ball of any kind this season. Well, I see no reason. My no. mother. Lady Brittlesey. Why, yes, of course. <laughs> yes, my mother, um, she insists that I invite you and your daughters, Conchita's bridesmaids, to London. 
London. London, London. England. All of Conchita's bridesmaids? There was talk, Mrs. Paramore, that for certain girls of refinement, New York has become too limited. Very limited. I quite agree. Yes, I quite agree too. And there's an urgency. The start of the season. In order that Ginny and the other debutantes may be presented at the debutantes' ball. To the Queen. <laughs> the Queen. Well, that is very kind of Lady Brittlesea. There we go. Christina Hendricks, Josh Dillon and Simone Kirby in the scene there from the Buccaneers, Jen Gannon, watching the new Apple TV Plus series. And obviously they're setting up. You can almost think they're going to be on an open top bus. Telling you, <laughs> I tell you what I want, what I really, exactly, really want. Completely. You can almost see them doing that yeah. in this. And such is the nature of the the music and the mm. background material that that wouldn't be out of place. That's what's very strange about it. I know we were, we were just talking about this. Like with Bridgerton, they do have this injection of contemporary music, but it's like mm. played by a string quartet. Like last season, they had Nirvana Stay Away that was used a lot in Bridgerton. Yeah. But in this, it is the direct song. So they are dancing at one point at a party to undertow, you know, that song um, by Warpaint. And there's Taylor Swift is here. Olivia Rodrigo is here. And it's like, Look, I know what happened with Marie Antoinette. Mm. It, Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette really broke the mould when she was trying to do something very different. What she was trying to do was try to express and point out how young Marie Antoinette was in that court and, and what she was, you know, taking yeah. place at that time. So she would put like a pair of Converse alongside the court shoes or she would use the music that she loved growing up, that kind of post-punk, um, Susie and the Banshees mm. and New Order and whatever. She would use that in the soundtrack. But too many people have used this as some kind of blueprint and lost the idea that was surrounding it. Now with, with this series, with the Buccaneers, by doing it in this way, it you don't actually understand if it's contem- if this is supposed to be contemporary or is this supposed to be from the 19th Although, century. Although maybe a little bit of bias, I will freely admit to that. Simone, Simone Kirby, even though we only get a small bit of her there, as she's, she's the, the, the she's governess. governess, isn't yeah. she? Uh, you, you, you somehow hear that she's managing to to straddle that idea of the modern delivery or the modern language within a kind of a period delivery. Mm, See, it looks like there's two different sections at play here because all of the UK and Irish actors are very much playing from the traditional period drama BBC Mm. playbook of how you do these kind of things. And then with the young girls, with the young cast, it's like they are from Gossip Girl. And you feel that then there's no actual real tension because you do feel at any moment these group of girls could get up and walk away and give the finger to everybody and go, see you later. There's no actual real conflict then. The only conflict is whether or not the the UK and Irish actors are going to actually join in on that as well. And Mrs. Uh, St. George played by Christina Hendricks. Have we seen much of her since Mad Men? We really haven't. Like, I mean... She was, there was a Netflix drama that she was in and Good Girls. Mm. I was kind of crime caper. And that is about the height of it that has been, you know, her career trajectory, which is disappointing because, you know, Joan in Mad Men is one of a great TV character and, and really well done by her. So you'd love to expect more from her in this, but that it's not... With all the characters, they're very underwritten and everything is very obvious. There's no nuance. Um, it's all very blatant. So you're not expecting a third act with her suddenly appearing and becoming very in-depth and involved in the story. She's more just a caretaker character. You're disappointed, Jen. Very disappointed because I think, you know, I know what they're aiming for. It's it's of that you-go-girl style yeah. of feminism that they want to imbue and install in young women. But I found it 
irritating more than I would yeah. find it interesting. So will you won't be rushing back. Will there be a second season? There might be. It, yeah. it sounds like there might be, but we, you know, with Maybe. the strikes, everything else, yeah, you know, what way who Apple knows. will go. But I mean, it, it, there is an audience there for it somewhere, I'm sure, but it, it's a younger audience and I don't know how much the adult themes will go down with them All in that right. way. The Buccaneers begins tomorrow on Apple TV. Jen Gann speaking to us about this evening.